Hey guys, Dr. Cassie here, and thanks for joining us for this Vetfolio podcast episode. In today's episode, sponsored in part by Elenco, I sit down and discuss how to address anorexia in our canine and feline patients with Dr. Jessica Pritchard. Keeping our patients eating is important for a lot of reasons, both for their own health and well-being and as part of that all-important human-animal bond between pets and their owners that we're there to help preserve. But getting an inappetent patient to eat is not always the easiest thing, am I right? In this episode, Dr. Pritchard will help walk us through when to worry about a dog or cat who's not eating, the next steps involved in working up an inappetent patient, drug selection to help stimulate appetite, and monitoring strategies for these patients. But before we get into it, let me tell you a bit about my guest. Dr. Pritchard earned her veterinary degree from the University of Pennsylvania. Following graduation, she traveled to North Carolina State University where she completed a rotating internship, small animal internal medicine residency, and a master's degree in comparative biomedical sciences. Currently, she's a clinical assistant professor at UW-Madison School of Veterinary Medicine, where her research interests include the pathology of immune-mediated and infectious disease in dogs and cats, as well as minimally invasive diagnostics and treatments. She spends her spare time with her Labrador retriever, Charlotte, who we get to know quite well in this episode. If you like the information presented here, be sure to check out Dr. Pritchard's web conference on the same topic, which will be available on Vetfolio soon. But without further ado, here's my interview with Dr. Pritchard. So, Dr. Pritchard, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks so much for having me, Dr. Cassie. Today, we're going to be talking about the rational use of appetite stimulants for anorexic patients eating again. So important. So, first off, let's talk about the why. So, why is knowing and understanding the use of appetite stimulants so important in our patients? Well, working with clients to address their pets eating early in the course of the primary disease is important for so many reasons. It helps them maintain their body condition. It allows the administration of medications and it helps maintain, most importantly, probably for us, the human-animal bond and the owner's perception of their pet's quality of life. For a lot of us, me in particular, we derive a good deal of satisfaction from putting that bowl of food out or putting that treat out and then seeing our pets actually enjoy it. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Just thinking about my own dog, Patches, she doesn't get formal treats these days per se because she gets enough calories vacuuming up the food that my kids throw on the floor. But (laughs) She does get a lot of enjoyment out of that. She likes to, you know, go around and pick everything up, which of course helps me. And I I would be really worried about her quality of life if I didn't see her enjoying that and going and doing that. Yes, exactly. And it's it's the same, I think, for most of our clients. And additionally, we know that in sick pets, early return to enteral nutrition improves outcome for a number of diseases and at least causes no harm in others. So really getting pets eating again is important for a multitude of reasons. And overall, that early return to eating can result in improved outcomes, decreased lengths of hospitalizations in really sick pets, and happier clients and pets overall. All the good outcomes that we're looking for. So at what point do we get worried? I think we've all gotten a GI bug where sometimes you just don't feel like you want to eat for a couple of days before appetite starts to return to normal. And I think we see similar things in our patients. So 
I know we've seen a lot of pets with these nonspecific GI signs that sort of self-resolve. So at what point do we worry about these inappetent patients? Yeah, of course. I own a Labrador, Charlotte, so I am well acquainted with self-limiting gastroenteritis. She loves to eat (laughs) sticks, and so she will have those days where she goes to the dog park and eats a bunch of mulch and feels a little bit sick for a couple days. When I really start to get worried and when I want to jump in is when I see a couple things. So a cat that's been anorexic for greater than three days, we know based on studies of hepatic lipidosis that that's kind of the average time that we need to start really worrying. Patients that are already cachectic and suddenly the client reports that they're not eating. Patients that already have protein-losing diseases diagnosed. So that might be a protein-losing nephropathy or a protein-losing enteropathy where we know that they're already nutritionally disadvantaged or an acute loss of five to 10% of body weight, regardless of cause. So that pet comes in for its annual exam, let's say, and the client says, you know, we've got multiple pets at home and seems like she's been eating, but you noticed compared to a year prior or six months prior when she was in for maybe a vaccine booster that this pet has suddenly lost five to 10% of their body weight. Those are fantastic guidelines. I love guidelines and being able to say, okay, here's the point where we worry and break it down into these are the patients you need to be looking at specifically. If you get a patient like this, where do you start? What's the first step in getting to the bottom of this and resolving this issue? Yeah. So for me, the first really important step is starting that workup to determine the underlying problem and addressing it. And like we just talked about that pet that lost 5% of their body weight, you know, maybe the client says, oh yeah, you know what? She started dock diving and I didn't increase her food, but she's exercising a ton now compared to where she used to. Well, that's an easy cause that we find out during the history. And so then we have potentially an easy solution, feed the pet more. And maybe that pet's not actually anorexic, but just has an increased caloric use compared to where they were before. We have great pharmacologic interventions now for inappetence in dogs and cats, but they're not miracle drugs if we don't figure out why that pet stopped eating in the first place. So my mantra is kind of, if the patient is sick enough for one of these drugs, they're sick enough for a diagnostic workup. And for me, this starts with a general and a problem-specific history. So number one, when did the problem start? Does the client remember if it was sudden or gradually progressive? Have there been other signs observed aside from a lack of appetite? So maybe the animal is urinating more than usual. Maybe they've noticed that there are a lot more spots in the litter box than there usually are. And then what the client has tried at home to treat the pet. So what feeding methods have they used? What foods have they tried? Do they have any medications that maybe they had left over from themselves or from a previous pet that they might have tried? And to what effect for each of those? So does the pet usually eat a prescription diet? And when they offered a non-prescription diet, the pet ate great. A physical examination may offer you some additional clues as well. So you'll want to compare that patient's past weight, body condition score, and muscle mass index to identify any changes, either more or less dramatic than what's been described by the owner. You'll want to evaluate for dental disease, the ability to actually open and close the mouth, check for vision, food prehension, so making sure that that can actually pick up food, mental status, abdominal pain or masses, in addition to your general full physical examination. So what you're saying is that those professors were onto something in school when they said start with a thorough history and a good physical exam. Yes, a lot of talking to start out with when we're trying to figure out why these pets aren't eating. 
Absolutely. So what if we, we do all this talking, we get our good physical exam, and we're kind of coming up empty. There's not really specific signs like we don't have this dog that ate a turkey carcass the day after Thanksgiving and clearly has pancreatitis. What if it's a little more unclear than that? Yeah, and that unfortunately seems to be the case for a lot of us, right? Especially for having a busy day, we'll have that unclear case. Basic lab work Always. here can definitely help steer <laughs> you in the correct direction. So we're talking about a complete blood count, or if the client is financially constrained, just a PCV and total protein with a slider view in-house. Basic chemistry panel where you can check at least for liver enzyme increases, check for azotemia, check for electrolyte imbalances, and ideally a urinalysis or at least a urine-specific gravity and dipstick in-house. It can help rule in or out a lot of the medicine problems that might make a pet anorexic. Basic imaging in the form of abdominal radiographs should really be performed to rule out mechanical obstruction before treating with any antiemetic or appetite stimulant drug in those patients that we talked about that haven't been eating and that seem pretty sick. I can't stress that enough. You really need to rule out GI obstruction before jumping in with these drugs. And maybe I'm biased because I am the owner of a Labrador and that's always in the back of my mind is could this, what did you eat? What did you eat and are you obstructed? <laughs> but treatment of clinical signs only without attention paid to the primary disease process is really setting up both the pet and the owner for failure and possibly unrealistic expectations and poor outcomes. Right. Like you said, a lot of times these cases come in in the middle of a busy day and it can be very tempting to use that Band-Aid approach of like, let me just stop the vomiting and we'll see what happens. But you're absolutely right. If we don't rule out a GI obstruction prior to treatment, it can be really detrimental to our clients and our patients. So we run the lab work, we do some abdominal imaging, maybe we send it out for review because it's not really clear cut. What kind of recommendations do you give to clients while we're waiting on our results? What are some of our supportive care options? Yeah, so while we're waiting for information to come back, clients can begin trying some options other than force feeding to get their pet to eat. Always amazed by clients seem to be the most compliant with my recommendations for prescription diets when their pets are anorexic. And so I'll say, you know, have you tried any other foods? Well, no, you prescribed this food, which I definitely appreciate. I appreciate the compliance, but this is the one time where I would say, does your pet actually need to be on that food right now? So things that they could try would include coax feeding. So trying to, you know, say, hey, try this food, come here, do you want this? Changing the food temperature. So if it's a room temperature food, or if it's a canned food, trying it heated up or trying it chilled, changing the food location. So if the pet always eats in the kitchen, try feeding it in the living room, changing food bowls. This is especially for cats. So do they want to eat on a paper plate instead of a ceramic plate or from a dish instead of a plate, et cetera, and things like that. And enhancing palatability. So palatability, we have a lot of options that we can use to enhance palatability. Things like maple syrup, honey, fruit, meat, cheese, obviously taking into consideration the pet's other comorbidities when you're making these recommendations for palatability enhancers. This might be accomplished as easily as suggesting that the client go to the grocery store and pick up a virtual cornucopia of diets for their pet to try off the shelf from the grocery store. So my oldest Labrador decided after years of eating a prescription renal diet that the only food he would eat was fresh pet. And so that for me, he was a Labrador. Him eating was really important. 
that was when we reassessed and said, okay, are there other things that we can do to meet his needs while still giving him a diet that he likes? And it meant that I had to give him some more medications, but because he was willing to eat, I was able to give him those medications and it worked out in the end. So those would be the things that I would start with recommending to clients while you're waiting to get that information back. Right. Just making sure you keep in mind what's going with the pet and do whatever it takes to get them to eat so that we can avoid force feeding. I know you mentioned that in the beginning a little while ago. And why specifically do you say to avoid force feeding with these guys other than the fact that it just makes them really mad when they're not feeling good? Yes, exactly. So there is always the risk of the pet actually getting angry and upset with the force feeding. And there are plenty of reasons. Chief amongst them for me is the development of food aversion. And that's especially important in pets where we're worried that they may need a prescription diet long-term. So Those of us humans who have experienced food poisoning may appreciate the unwillingness to associate with foods that we consumed around the time of illness for long periods of time afterwards, if ever. When I was a, gosh, I don't know, maybe 10-year-old, I got food poisoning and the last thing I ate was cinnamon ice cream and it just still makes me ill to say the words out loud. I am certain that it wasn't from the cinnamon ice cream. It was probably from the crab cakes, but gosh darn it, if I will never eat cinnamon ice cream ever again. And the same is true of our patients forced to consume a diet when they feel ill. Additionally, we're unlikely to force feed a meaningful percentage of their caloric requirements. So a small jar of baby food or a small can of cat food typically contains less than 100 kilocalories. So if you were trying to force feed even a beagle, that would be tons of those jars per day and just not something realistic for most owners to do and not fair, I think, to put the pet through. So depending on the pet and the disease process or mental status, there's also the risk of aspiration pneumonia from force feeding that may be present too. And lastly, it can harm the bond between the pet and the owner, which is something that we never want to do as veterinarians. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So an appetite stimulant would definitely be the better option in those cases. When do we say, okay, coax feeding, increasing palatability, these other options, they just aren't working. And when do we start to consider an appetite stimulant in an anorexic patient? So I see three rational uses for appetite stimulants overall in veterinary practice. The first is exactly what we're talking about here, that short-term support when we have pending diagnostics and those first-line efforts of coax feeding and trying to feed in different locations and things like that aren't working. The second is to actually help cure behavioral food aversion or getting pets to eat the food that we need them to eat. So we need you to eat this hepatic diet because of progression of your disease. So we're going to give you an appetite stimulant and get you eating it regularly, maybe because you were force fed it for the first few weeks and you now have a food aversion. And finally, third is appetite support in diagnosed chronic illness. So that may be the pet with progressive chronic kidney disease or diagnosed neoplasia working their way through a chemotherapy protocol. And then what kind of options are there when it comes to appetite stimulants in those situations? Right now, we're really lucky in that we have two FDA approved drugs that we can choose from and start with in our arsenal. So First, we'll talk about capromorelin or Entice. So capromorelin is a ghrelin receptor agonist that stimulates appetite via binding of the pituitary and growth hormone release. 
And ghrelin is a hormone that kind of makes your stomach growl out loud, usually during quiet meetings. So it's what tells us to eat and tells us that we're hungry. And in a field study of dogs with at least two days of an appetence, capramorelin was found to significantly increase appetite in dogs compared with placebo. In that study, the most common side effect reported was diarrhea. And this drug is actually FDA approved for use in dogs only to treat inappetence. Per the label, caution is to be used in dogs with hepatic or renal dysfunction. And the standard dose is three milligrams per kilogram orally, once daily. And in my experience, it really works. I can speak to this drug in that I was one of those clients with a dog, Charlotte, on a chemotherapeutic protocol that I needed her to eat. I needed to see her eat her food for me to be able to stomach getting through that chemo protocol with her and giving her capramorelin on day three after her doxorubicin, she would immediately start eating like I would say a horse, but she's a Labrador. So I'm going to say like a Labrador again. <laughs> and if I do have a dog that has developed diarrhea on this medication, I'll drop the dose back a tiny bit and see if that improves stool consistency. But I have noticed for a lot of owners, they're just so happy that their dog is eating again and showing signs of improvement that the stool consistency is something that only comes up if I'm asking them about it. Right. One of those that kind of gets pushed to the background because the eating is so much more important in those situations. For sure. So it sounds like a great option, fairly safe. But it, since it's only approved in dogs, what options do we have in cats? Are there any studies about using entice in cats? Exactly. So capramorelin isn't currently labeled for use in cats. There are, however, safety studies published in cats, but it's still only FDA approved for use in dogs. Gotcha, gotcha. So if capramorelin is not an option in cats, what do you typically use in cats? So mirtazapine is my go-to for use in cats that aren't eating. It's a tricyclic antidepressant whose general mechanism of action isn't quite clear. It's thought that it likely works via blocking serotonin receptors, but it also has strong antihistamine effects. There is an FDA-approved version, Miritaz, that's transdermal. It's not approved as an appetite stimulant, but rather to manage unintended weight loss in cats. So in a clinical study, administration of two milligrams transdermally resulted in significant weight gain in cats in four. 14 days. You can also get mirtazapine as a tablet. And the important thing to remember when using the tablets is to start with an appropriate dose and interval. So what is the, the dose and the interval that you recommend to clients? Yeah, so I typically start with a dose that is much lower than what's published in some of the older formularies. So a dose of 1.88 milligrams so a very tiny dose. Every 48 hours orally was found to be effective in significantly increasing weight, appetite, and decreasing vomiting in a placebo-controlled, double-masked, crossover clinical trial, so that kind of ideal trial that we always want to see in 11 cats with chronic kidney disease. So the important thing there is it's that low dose, 1.88 milligrams every other day in cats with chronic kidney disease. In cats without chronic kidney disease, I still start with that low dose, so 1.88 milligrams, but every 24 hours as the appropriate interval based on pharmacologic studies. So the use of that lower dose gives you all those good effects that you're looking for with the drug. So increasing weight, increasing appetite, also, you'll notice decreasing vomiting, which is great. So you get double action on this drug without the side effects like vocalization, agitation, vomiting, ataxia, 
hypersalivation and tachypnea. We actually have a client callback pinned to our wall that says their cat is running around the house possessed by demons. And that was oh, from no. a cat. On, yes, a cat that was sent mirtazapine and unfortunately experienced those side effects. There are studies published by the ASPCA Poison Control Helpline that found that at a dose of about 1.88 milligrams per cat is where you lose those side effects essentially, but you still get the good effects of the drug. So from a cat where the client was asked to split the tablet into one eighth size pieces to get to an appropriate dose, that's where I think we're getting these cats that are running around the house possessed by demons. That's a really hard thing for clients to do. It's, I mean, I have a hard time splitting my dog's own medications. So I definitely sympathize with our clients, getting them to split a pill into eighths. So either get your tablets smaller, so clients are giving maybe a quarter of a 7.5 milligram tablet, or you can use the transdermal form and potentially avoid having the client have to pill the cat at all. That Yes, I agree with you. I've never seen one that's possessed by demons, but I have aced a tiny <laughs> mirtazapine tablet, and I 100% agree with you. Smaller tablets or transdermal is the way to go with that one. Really hard. <laughs> it is, yeah. I mean, you're just like, can you ace the tablet? And it's, no, please don't make me do that. Yes, <laughs> Understandably exactly. So. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any other options out there for cats? Not that are FDA approved. So ciproheptadine is an antihistamine, but there's very little data on efficacy. In my experience, it doesn't really work that well at all, at least in my hands. It's more accepted as an appetite stimulant in cats than dogs, but you can definitely find doses for both dogs and cats in drug formularies. Where we get into shady legal territory is the use of things like dronabinol which is synthetic THC, which is used predominantly in human AIDS and chemotherapy patients. Have I personally seen dronabinol work in a dog where nothing else would work? This was before caprimerolin existed. Yes. Would I want to risk legal action in prescribing an FDA Schedule Three drug with little to no efficacy or safety data in animals? Not when we have FDA-approved drugs for treating inappetence like enticin miritaz. Lastly would be remedies like acupuncture, which again lack good evidence for efficacy, but unlike synthetic THC, they're generally safe for our patients. And really the only risk is to clients' pocketbooks for the cost of the treatment. So I'm perfectly fine if clients want to add in acupuncture or other holistic treatments to help stimulate appetite in their pets as well. Right, whatever's working in them to get that appetite going, get them eating again. Yes. Uh, what about following up with these patients? If the appetite stimulants, they're just not working as well as we want them to, what do we look at next? So if you've done all this and your patient still isn't eating, you'll want to make sure that you're addressing nausea too. My preference is something like ondansetron. So meropotent is a really great drug to stop vomiting. It will stop vomiting in its tracks, but it is not a good drug based on several models to treat nausea in our patients. So if you have a patient that's hypersalivating and just looks like they're really nauseous, or you know that they have a disease process that is accompanied by nausea, so something like chronic kidney disease, my go-to is on Dancitron. So I try and make sure that I'm treating nausea in these pets still. If you're at this point and the pet still isn't eating, it's also probably time to reevaluate your initial diagnosis and control of the underlying disease. So 
This is also a good time to check in with the client and make sure that they're giving the drugs as you prescribed and at the right doses. Go back through those coax feeding methods we described earlier and make sure that there isn't force feeding happening. If you've done all of those and the pet still isn't eating, it's probably time to consider assisted feeding interventions. And those would be things in the form of in-hospital techniques like a nasogastric or nasoesophageal feeding tube or at-home techniques like esophageal or gastric feeding tubes. Right. We could probably do a whole nother lecture on enteral nutrition for hospitalized patients. But sticking to, yeah, that would be a topic in and of itself. But sticking to getting the pets eating on their own, can you kind of give us a quick recap on what we should be trying to get those anorexic pets eating again before we move on to the assisted intervention? So what's kind of our take-home message that we need to just keep in our hip pocket when we're treating these anorexic critters? Absolutely. So we want to remember that the patients that we're really concerned about, because we've all seen the Labrador with nonspecific GI distress that will resolve on its own, are pets with protein-losing diseases like PLE or PLN, cats that are anorexic for greater than three days, and pets with a loss of 5 to 10% of body weight acutely. My first step and the recommended first step that I have for everyone is to work to determine the underlying problem and address it, including always ruling out GI obstruction. Next, we want to move on to trying options other than force feeding like coax feeding. And then finally, moving on to our pharmacologic interventions like addressing nausea and vomiting and then adding in an appetite stimulant. The three conditions where we want to stimulate appetite are the first, short-term support while we await pending diagnostics in that acutely ill patient that fits those criteria we discussed above. Number two would be fixing food aversion. And number three would be long-term support in chronically diagnosed illnesses. In dogs, we have caparamorelin or entice that is the only FDA-approved drug to address inappetence, while in cats, mirtazapine and the transdermal form of mirtaz is FDA-approved for the treatment of unintended weight loss. Perfect. That's a fantastic synopsis to just kind of keep in mind. I was kind of chuckling to myself at the when you first started talking and said we've all seen the Labrador with the nonspecific GI signs just to take some of the heat off of poor Charlotte. Mine was a Rottweiler who liked to eat rocks. Lots of nonspecific oh, okay. GI signs. <laughs> Charlotte feels better now and less guilty, although she does provide good material. <laughs> Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I bet you we could swap some stories about some of the things that they've eaten. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great to have you on, and I feel like this is all fantastic information that we can use going forward. Thanks so much, Dr. Cassie. It was great to be here. A big thank you to Dr. Pritchard for such a great interview on an important topic, and thanks to all of you for joining us. And of course, thank you to Elenco for sponsoring this event. If you'd like to find out more about this and other exciting podcasts, click on the Education tab on Vetfolio's portal. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this episode as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.